Just a quick note before we start, we're currently in the middle of our series about feminist development policy, and we'll get back to that series next episode. But today we're bringing you a special episode about the outcome of the W7 Summit that we wanted to bring you in the meantime. Hope you enjoy. Our voices, our choices, the gender political podcast of the Heinrich Bull Foundation. It was a group photo featuring just one lady, the official photo of the G7 summit this year. In front of a striking mountain backdrop in Elmau, Bavaria, eight older men are standing on a small wooden platform, some of the most powerful men in the world. Their legs loosely apart, to a T they're wearing dark suits and white shirts. They're the heads of government of Canada, the USA, Great Britain, Japan, Italy, Germany, France, and the president of the EU Council. And next to them, a lone lady in apricot, Ursula von der Leyen, there in her role as president of the EU Commission. So G7, that was just men in suits. And then there was von der Leyen and a couple of women representatives from the international trade organizations. Other than that, you saw who was calling the shots. And it really shouldn't be that way. And that this changes? That's what the W7R committed to. W7 stands for Women 7 and is a global alliance of NGOs and interest groups that campaign for women's rights and more gender justice at the G7. The Women's 7 works every year in parallel with the G7. There's an official dialogue, exchange, and regular meetings between them and the various politicians. In this way, the aim is that civil society is integrated into the G7 process and is at least listened to while major international policy is being decided at these summits. Because that's precisely the point. With their annual summits and communiques, the G7 formulate political guidelines that have impacts that go far beyond the G7 states themselves. So the perspective of those who were only minimally represented at these summits, or not represented at all, should also be given a voice. Women, girls, marginalized groups, and the LGBTIQ community. For more justice, a more diverse and also intersectional perspective is needed. This is what the W7 are fighting for. So what did the W7 achieve at the G7 this year? We talked about this with activists from Japan, South Africa, the USA, and Germany. I'm your host, Kevin Kaners, and this is Our Voices, Our Choices, the feminist podcast from the Heinrich Bull Foundation. This podcast episode was produced in cooperation with the National Council of German Women's Organizations, or the Deutsche Frauenrat, and its W7 project office. But before we get into what the W7 achieved this year in relation to the G7 summit, let's quickly look at how we got here. First of all, we need to quickly look at the G7 itself. The G7 is an abbreviation of the Group of Seven, and is made up of Canada, the USA, Great Britain, Japan, Italy, Germany, and France. This informal grouping was founded in 1975 against the backdrop of the oil crisis as a way to jointly address financial and economic issues. But in the years since, the range of topics that the group addresses has expanded considerably, from minimum corporate tax rates to climate change and foreign policy. Representing seven countries of developed economic might, the group is tremendously influential, and the summits represent one of the most politically powerful gatherings on the planet. But thankfully, the seven leaders don't call the shots in a complete vacuum. 
There's also another level, the dialogue that they have with civil society. Here, non-state actors can get involved in the G7 process and make their interests known. So engagement groups exist. For example, the scientific community has Science 7, and trade unions have Labor 7. But the Women's 7, or W7, specifically held one of its first gatherings in Canada in 2018, when Canada held the rotating presidency. Its purpose was to give the feminist perspective and represent a part of civil society that is typically unrepresented at these meetings. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for being here and for joining us in Ottawa this week. I know many of you came from great distances, and I truly appreciate your commitment to this important work we're doing together. So in April 2018, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau welcomed the participants of the W7 Summit. Over 60 feminists from the G7 countries and other nations came to Ottawa for the event. All issues are feminist issues, was the motto at the time. In his welcoming speech to the 2018 W7 Summit, Justin Trudeau emphasized how closely gender justice and economic growth are linked. As we know, women's equality is a huge driver of economic growth that works for everyone. And as we look to the future, the empowerment of women and girls will strengthen our communities in unparalleled ways. True gender equality is the ultimate goal, leading to economic growth that works for everyone. And we cannot rest until we achieve it. So that's where it started. But the W7 took on particular importance for Germany this year, as Germany holds the G7 presidency for 2022. Progress towards an equitable world. That's the goal that the German government set for its year holding the G7 presidency. The heads of state and government are challenged to help achieve this goal. But so is civil society, including the W7. So for several months leading up to the G7 summit in June, the Women's Seven regularly met. They formed working groups where they addressed particular issues, from climate justice to gender-based violence. The goal was to make recommendations to the leaders of the G7 summit, and as a result, make their voices and perspectives heard. All this work culminated in a W7 summit in May and a final communique and implementation plan. But so what did they achieve this year? What did the W7 influence? Which of their issues were taken up by the G7 and were reflected in the G7 communique? And which ones were not? Your Excellency, Chancellor Scholz, the German G7 presidency aims for progress towards an equitable world. With this communique, Women 7 offers you the tools to achieve this goal. Now we need you to support us in this. Let's use the G7 to really transform the system for sustainable solutions and gender equality at the heart of them. It is time to deliver on a gender-just future. At the end of May, we had our summit, and it was really great. The federal minister Paus opened our summit on the first day. And on the second day, of course, there was the handover of our W7 communique to the federal chancellor Olaf Scholz, who is also this year's G7 president. That was definitely an incredible highlight of our W7 summit. Carolina Ausra is the W7 project coordinator at the National Council of German Women's Organizations. As Germany holds the presidency of the G7, the National Council of German Women's Organizations 
organized the work of the Women Seven this year. 64 activists from leading NGOs working for the rights of women, girls, and LGBTIQ+, or gender-diverse people, came together. For several months, they worked and consulted with each other. A total of 24 countries were represented. Also, tatsächlich... In fact, it was always important to us not only to take representatives from the G7 countries, but to also go beyond them. Because we say that G7 policy also has an effect beyond the G7 countries. And that means that we would definitely also like people from the global south. Feminists who can influence their governments. And I believe that a lot came from our colleagues from the Global South. Also, again, this demand from the Global South to admit responsibility for the various crises that we are currently living through. The countries of G7 are some of the biggest emitters of CO2, and so are the ones disrupting the climate the most. And they are also the richest countries. And accordingly, when we talk about climate justice, they would have to take more responsibility for that and shoulder more costs. The Global South often also still has historical debt that cripple many of their governments today. In some cases, more money goes from the Global South to the North than vice versa. And that was, for example, also a demand of ours, that you break that up. The preamble to the W7 communique states, quote, Following the principles of inclusion and intersectionality, Woman 7 brings together feminist civil society from around the world. Intersectional, in case you haven't heard that term before, it means to keep in mind that forms of structural discrimination intersect. A white woman is affected differently by discrimination than a black trans woman or an intersex person with a disability. And it asks you to keep in mind that social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. For the W7, intersectional approaches are fundamental. That recognition, we found that W7 did, you know, have a recognition of the different aspects of vulnerability that LGBTQ people face, that women face, that Black women face, that Black non-binary people face as well, you know. So um, that that was very important. And I think that that broad understanding of gender by W7 was very good. And I think that it also impacted uh, even the final G7 um, communique. We see that it was an important contribution to highlight the diversity of women and the different vulnerabilities they face because of their intersecting identities. Kanyo Furize is a human rights lawyer for the NGO Outright Action International, which fights for the rights of LGBTIQ plus people worldwide. She works for the NGO's Africa office in Johannesburg, South Africa. She and her organization have not been directly involved in the Women's Seven process, but they have followed it closely. As outright, we were very much uh, following the G7 process and as far as possible um, were made efforts to uh, make submissions or provide information that could help world leaders to include LGBT issues in their recommendations or their resolutions. 
the W7 process is also a very important one, which we've closely followed, because really it brings together the voices of feminist and uh, women-led organizations uh, to actually have their voices present in spaces where normally they probably wouldn't have been as present. The work of the 64 W7 activists worldwide was and is being followed with great hope. There were six working groups, women's economic empowerment, justice and rights, gender equal COVID recovery, climate justice, feminist foreign policy, gender-based violence, and accountability mechanisms. On the basis of these working groups, demands were developed and solidified. The main purpose was to create recommendations of what policymakers need to do to ensure greater gender equality around the world. The aim was to find answers and formulate recommendations, and to do so, as politicians have little time to read, on as few pages as possible. But they also didn't have too much time. The W7 and its working groups had, until May, to have the W7 final declaration ready. The hope then was that these ideas would find their way into the final communique of the German-led G7 summit. In the W7 communique, we think it's important to address overarching principles. The first is ensuring meaningful participation and representation of women and girls in decision-making at all levels. And the second is to apply gender equity as a universal and fundamental principle. And that means that every issue that we address and that the G7 leaders address, that you consider, okay, there's an issue that you might not immediately associate with gender equity, but that you say, let's look at it. How does it affect women and girls differently now? For example, the climate crisis. Women and girls in particular, especially in the global south, are more affected. So that means that you should think about that. And that is important to remember, that the climate crisis is not gender neutral and that women, girls, and gender-diverse people are affected differently and more often in the global south. But now let's continue with the W7 demands on the G7. The third point was gender-equitable and gender-sensitive budgeting. For everything that we spend money on as a state, we should consider, does it affect women and girls differently? And the last thing is data. It helps if we have a lot of numbers and therefore know what we're talking about. How many people are affected and what are the consequences? And this data collection should also be gender-specific and intersectional. In addition to these general demands on policymakers, the W7 communique also includes specific demands from the working groups. But as the Feminist Foreign Policy Working Group, our first ask very simply was to ask G7 countries to commit to adopting a feminist foreign policy. So to date, among the G7 membership, we have feminist foreign policies in Canada, in France, in Germany, and we want to see this adopted amongst others. So, And that means that they should not just say we're adopting this, but meaningfully implement a feminist approach throughout all facets of foreign policy. So that includes development assistance, trade, immigration, security, humanitarian affairs, climate change, and other areas. That's Pagme Ahmed from the USA. And she works at the International Center for Research on Women. 
She's a specialist in international relations and one of the advisors of the working group Feminist Foreign Policy at the W7. Feminist foreign policy is such a unique approach to foreign policy in that it's really prioritizing things like peace, gender equality, environmental integrity in all foreign policy analysis and decision making. So it's urging governments to challenge a lot of the colonial and patriarchal power structures that so much of traditional foreign policy and multilateralism is built upon. So it's centralizing human rights in its approach. It's centralizing those communities who are most marginalized. And it's urging governments to see civil society and other partners as on equal footing, that they can work together, that feminist foreign policy is at the end of the day for the people. Feminist foreign policy was one of the central topics this year, in part because of Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine. The importance of peace. And this has, well, this issue has been always with us. I mean, even before the war in Ukraine, there have been wars in many parts of the world. But we now realize that we didn't tackle with it properly. Uh, like, for example, in the SDGs, there is a goal 16, which deals with peace. But on, in the targets of the goal 16, the nuclear weapons or disarmament have not been properly included. That might be because the nature of the UN resolution to get approved by consensus. So it might have been difficult to include that kind of issue in the SDGs to get a consensus from all the member states. But what we see right now in most of us is that then, uh, we sort of escaped to see the very important and indispensable areas of work if we think about achieving peace. In addition to Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine, the climate crisis has dominated many discussions, as well as the pandemic. Miwa Atsuko is the executive director of the Human Rights Information Center in Osaka, Japan. She points out that suicide rates among women in their 20s and 40s increased dramatically by 80% during the corona pandemic in Japan. A human rights activist, she is an advisor to the W7 in the working group that deals with the gendered consequences of the corona pandemic. So we still have to work hard on that because recognition of care work and then the transformation of economic structure with a due sort of recognition of care work they require a very massive transformation of the system. After many discussions and video conferences, the W7 condensed the core demands into just two pages. The communique was unanimously adopted, along with an implementation plan that identifies concrete actions and tools to realize these demands. Then, at the end of May, they delivered their recommendations to this year's G7 president, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who accepted it on behalf of all the heads of government. Now, it is my pleasure and great honor to hand over the W7's communique to you as G7 president. 
ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for your recommendations. We will take a close look at them in preparation of the G7 summit in Elmau. That still gives me goosebumps. That is also a testament to the current government, that they say, yes, we take you seriously. We want civil society voices to be heard. And because of that, we want to include them in our process, namely the G7 leaders meeting, which then took place a month later. Carolina Ausera and the W7 project team also went to Almau in Upper Bavaria a month later and were able to be present at the G7 summit itself, at least on the sidelines. So what did all their work achieve? How did Chancellor Olaf Scholz and his G7 colleagues include the feminist, inclusive, and intersectional perspective of the W7 in their final joint statement? We were very excited. We were very curious to see what would come out of it, because the Chancellor came to our summit. We had great hope that some things would be adopted. We also worked very closely with the individual ministries. So then we thought, okay, now is the moment of truth. What did the leaders end up adopting from us, from the W7 communique? And actually, we were overall pretty pleasantly surprised. The G7 leaders communique, as it's called, so the final communique, contains ambitious and gender policy goals that are also inclusive. So they also have, for example, a very broad understanding of gender and gender justice, in that, for example, they also explicitly mention transgender and non-binary people for the first time. But that being said, there is a lack of concrete initiatives and a lack of initiatives underpinned by financial commitments. That's often the problem with these things. And that's why we had as our motto, time to deliver, And deliver doesn't just mean nice-sounding words, but also money to be able to implement measures. And that's what we lacked. In their communique, the W7 demanded that countries invest at least an additional 2% of their gross domestic product in social infrastructure, i.e. in things like health, education, and childcare. But tangible steps towards this were limited. The only thing that is backed up with money in the area of gender equality is the support of 79 million US dollars for the Child Care Incentive Fund to help improve women's economic participation. Yes, that is a good first step, but it's not enough and it won't be enough. And the measures that we have called for would be even more comprehensive. But even though there weren't as many concrete financial commitments as might have been hoped for, Spakme Ahmed says there was still a lot of progress this year. Several years ago, I would have never expected a body like the G7 to actually say the word feminist, let alone to acknowledge a feminist foreign policy. And of course, we as civil society want more. We want to see these commitments actualized. We want to see funding backing them. We want to see feminist foreign policy integrated throughout various streams of work and for G7 actors to really internalize them and implement them in a meaningful way. But I was pleasantly surprised in a way that they did make this step, that they did acknowledge feminist foreign policy. And here again is Kanyo Farise of Outright Action International. Many states haven't even come to the place of understanding gender and gender equality uh, in a broad understanding of also understanding that there are non-binary people, that there are LGBTQ people, that there are transgender people. And so for me, the fact that that G7 communique 
has that broader understanding of gender is very important and it's a very big start. I also uh, thought that G7 community was good insofar as, for example, sexual and reproductive health rights are concerned. But I do think that they could have gone further in understanding intersectionality and really understanding that the the reason why lots of our countries, especially in Africa uh, and other parts of the world, are grappling with this discrimination against LGBTQ people is because of the colonial legacies of racism and colonialism and patriarchy, etc. So then that would put these countries in a better place to really design uh, and make commitments that recognize, uh, you know, the basis of where we find ourselves. I mean, in many jurisdictions on the continent, there's ongoing litigation within courts where we're trying to turn these laws around, uh, these colonial legacy laws, which criminalize consensual same-sex relationships. And of course, those are inherited from our, our past. So the point there is that this could have gone further to acknowledge that there is this problem of homophobia and that whole problem is linked to, to colonial legacies and there's a responsibility that comes with that. I have to say that uh, we are not 100% satisfied with the G7 community, unfortunately. Miwa Atsuko, who we heard from a bit earlier, is an advisor in the Women's 7 Working Group, which deals with the effects of the COVID pandemic and with the importance of care work. In her opinion, the G7 communique pays far too little attention to this topic. In the section dealing with work and social affairs, the G7 makes no reference to gender justice, and this after two years of the pandemic. The impact of COVID-19 pandemic, which revealed the importance of women's work, which is care work and also essential work, including care work, but not limited to the care work, which has often cases supported or shouldered by women, women workers, who are also often cases not regular workers, like seasonal, temporary, or part-time workers. But our lives have been really supported by those workers. So the importance of the women's work, essential work, and especially the care work, that should be more strongly addressed in order for the economy to be fairer. And gender-sensitive climate policy is almost non-existent at the G7. Even though the climate crisis is a major issue, and climate justice is a central goal of the G7, but the fact that the climate crisis often hits women and girls harder, especially in the global south, is seemingly not an issue for the G7. But there was one positive initiative that Miwa points to. It was good about the accountability mechanism, which is called Dashboard on Gender Gaps. And I think that was a step forward. But we have to see carefully whether this mechanism is truly effective. For Carolina Auslera, it was a significant success that the G7 followed the W7's demand and created a review mechanism. Accountability. That was a new topic that we brought up. Because we also said you can't always just have this final communique of the G7 that says, yes, we have this and that planned and we will do this and that, and then it's never reviewed. And we said, that's not enough. 
you can promise all kinds of things, but when you look at the details, what has actually happened? This is what the Women 7 will look at next year. Next year, when the W7 process will be organized and coordinated by activists from Japan, as Japan will then hold the G7 presidency. The work of the Women 7 goes on, must go on, so that the photos of the G7 summits in future years show a more diverse picture than just seven men wearing dark suits and white shirts. Our voices, our choices, the gender political podcast of the Heinrich Bull Foundation. This was the podcast episode, The Woman 7, Dialogue 2022, Gender Justice in the G7, a podcast in the series, Our Voices, Our Choices. You can listen to the series and all other Heinrich Bull Foundation shows in the podcast app of your choice. For feedback, you can email us at podcast at bull.de, that's B-O-E-L-L dot D-E, and feel free to recommend us to others. I'm Kevin Kaners, and this podcast was created in cooperation with the National Council of German Women's Organizations and the W7 Project Office, and is a production of the Audio Collective.